0: This is no April Fool's joke. Our March membership campaign was so successful that we're extending it through the entire month of April. Enjoy 50% off the regular monthly or annual membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code nofooling, one word, to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a limited time offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code NOFOOLING to receive 50% off. Thank you. Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as the Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. Uh, This week we are joined by the esteemed Sir Lawrence Friedman. He is the Emeritus Professor uh, of uh, of War Studies at King's College London, as well as the author of a new book, Command the Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine. Uh, he is known as the Dean of Strategic Studies, uh, certainly in the UK, probably worldwide, and is a must-read analyst uh, and essayist on all things uh, military, but particularly, I've been following his work um, religiously since the war in Ukraine began in February of 2022. Uh, and I invited Sir Lawrence on this week because he wrote a very um, good overview, I thought, of the debate, among other things, uh, uh the wisdom uh, or lack thereof in defending Bakhmut. Um, which has seen some degree of stabilization in recent days, uh, suggesting perhaps the Ukrainians were correct in their decision. But, uh, Sir Lawrence, it's great to have you on. And um, among all the topics I, I want to pick your brain about, uh, included in your most recent essay, uh, "Still Bakhmut," which you can find on Sir Lawrence's Substack, and I will tweet it out when this episode drops. Um, Tell us a little bit about your impression of the uh, the Putin Xi summit. Uh, this seemed to be kind of a, an anticlimactic moment that uh, the Russians clearly were hoping the Chinese would go all in, as it were, in this war of conquest in Ukraine, um, sending heavy armaments and material, and, materiel, and it, it doesn't seem to have worked to Moscow's design. What, what's your your overview of, of that event?
1: Well, I think that that's right. Uh, how? much the russians really expected the chinese would send very uh, visible uh, high quality kit i'm not sure because that would raise all sorts of issues for z in relations with the west um that while he may not particularly uh feel the the, the relations with the west generally are going very well at the moment doesn't mean to say he wants to make them worse especially the europeans um I know it would take a while before what they have could be incorporated on the Russian side. But I think even without that, it was a pretty disappointing occasion for um, for Russia. Uh, the pipeline deal that they hoped to complete wasn't. Uh, and I think you read the joint statement at the end, and the thing that struck me most was just how low energy it was from the Russian side. It was basically agreeing to lots of slightly absurd uh, Chinese proposals or on the future of civilization and the like, um, and also rather tamely agreeing uh, to their peace proposal, which uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, however cynical we may view it, is if the principles embodied were applied, then Russia would have to withdraw now. I don't think z necessarily is going to take it that far or expect it but but uh you didn't get the feeling at all that, that putin was in a robust mood it, it it struck me uh as being as you said right at the start very anticlimactic
0: yeah and i mean china remains the most important strategic ally or partner for russia at the moment they seem to have been isolated everywhere in europe um there, there had been chatter prior to the summit that the Chinese and the Indians in particular were crucial in convincing Putin of the catastrophic folly of using any kind of WMD on the battlefield in Ukraine, which seems to have, the threat of that seems to have diminished somewhat. Although I also wanted to to inquire with you about um, this uh, proposal or threat really to sta- uh, station nuclear missiles in Belarus is it more just kind of empty saber rattling or is it something that the West ought to be worried about?
1: Um, well, a lot of points there. Yeah. Uh, start on the um, what was actually said about nucleus. Uh, the, uh, they repeated this statement that was first made famous by Reagan and Gorbachev that uh, uh, about the nuclear war essentially mustn't be fought, uh, that it would be catastrophic. And China has taken a pretty a consistent line on that. Secondly, the statement made it clear that they're not allies. It went out of its way to explain how this isn't an alliance. In fact, they the, the statement contains a lot of descriptions of things it isn't. Um, and there's no reference to this sort of uh, forever partnership <coughs> that was <coughs> excuse me, this forever partnership that was spoken about in February um 2022, just before the invasion, when it was all much more effusive, Um, so the 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 Chinese were cautious on that point. As for the tactical nukes to Belarus, I mean the the timing was odd, given this statement had just been made to the um, made to the Chinese. My my best interpretation is that it's it's sort of a way of tying Lukashenko more in to his alliance with with moscow Uh, if there's russian tactical nukes in belarus then russia would have a an interest at any point if lukashenko's uh, position was under threat uh, to take care of them so it may have that and i think that they want to uh, keep the nuclear issue there hanging around Um, because there are plenty in the West who do worry about this for understandable reasons, Uh, and so they want to keep it to the fore. But uh, I think it's largely performative in in that sense, and the the, the advantages of nuclear weapons remain deterrent for Putin. They work perfectly well for him in a deterrent role. Uh, I don't think he particularly wants to jeopardise that by actually using them.
0: It seems that that you know the U.S. response to these threats, which have been periodic throughout the last year, um, is almost dismissive. I mean, they keep calm, carry on until we suge- we have intelligence that suggests they're doing anything of this nature. Um, they they see it as exactly that performative. Do you agree?
1: Well, I, I think that's been the response of the administration. On the other hand, um, they didn't support a no-fly zone early on when when. Um, ukraine wanted it and i think their general view has been that we avoid escalation about serious risk of escalation by not fighting side by side with ukraine which is quite you know, a major uh position to take equally they can look at uh russia and next, believe that they've been deterred from trying to interdict uh stuff going to ukraine through nato countries so um I think the effect of nuclear weapons largely has been to contain the conflict, which is a way what theorists of deterrence would expect.
0: Sure. Well, let's let's turn then to the the, the front line. Um, so I've had several guests on the show to discuss what's actually happening at a very high strategic level in Kiev in terms of. You know, this decision to hold on to this otherwise seemingly irrelevant town, Bakhmut in, in Donetsk, uh, the logic appears to be, and this is seems consensual at all levels from Zaluzhny on down, um, should Bakhmut fall to to the Russian occupiers, which have been throwing everything they can, including countless mercenaries and, and so on into this fight, um, this is only going to quicken the deterioration of Ukraine's defenses along the the contact line. And also the the corollary of that is that the more we wear down the Russians here, the easier it will be for us to mount our forthcoming spring counteroffensive. But there's there's a very acute debate taking place, uh, especially in, in sort of Western analytical quarters about, is this just folly? You know, is this some kind of Soviet era doctrine of overwhelming manpower and, and you know, uh, a campaign of attrition? What what do you make of, of recent developments? Because it does seem as though Ukraine has got a little more on the front foot here, uh, or at least the situation seems to be stabilizing. There's a piece in the New York Times from Bakhmut that suggests Whereas several weeks ago, the the situation was apocalyptic, things, you know, Russian fire is down, Um, casualties on the Ukrainian side seem to be diminishing. What's your appraisal?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a very fair summary of the debate. Uh, It has been intense. And I think it, 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 I mean, it comes from Ukraine initially. I mean, it's been picked up in the West. but you know, when one talks to Ukrainians, there's there's a deep consciousness of uh, of how much they have lost um, in terms of good people, uh, experienced people, people who knew how to fight, um, and there is a worry uh, in uh, not only in a, in a very human sense, but in uh, a practical sense that that these three corps they're putting together. Uh, to to fight the offensive might be diminished if they have to keep on putting in uh, more reserves to hold up um, positions around a uh, a city that's now rubble, which is tends to be the fate of almost any city that they end up having to defend. Uh, so that that's the debate. I think th- I think that there's another twist to the argument. It it's true that. For Ukraine, they could move to possibly better defensive lines. Um, I think for Russia, it's actually more of a problem. uh, If you look at the Russian performance to date, it's been abysmal, really, uh, in terms of the strength and firepower with which they started this war. They haven't made any serious gains since the summer, and the gains that they made in the summer were outweighed by what they lost in the autumn. And um, if the this is supposed to be their offensive, uh, if if they don't take something out of this that meets um, Putin's objectives, they're, they're in trouble. And you also have to combine that with a recognition that that you're now seeing in Moscow too that the whole campaign against Ukrainian uh, infrastructure. Has failed. I mean, it succeeded it, it in, in in causing a lot of damage uh, and making life a bit miserable for people over over the winter, but it didn't um, it didn't turn the, the the light and heat off completely. And the uh, and, and winter's over. Uh, it May return next winter, but that's some time away. Uh, and it used up a lot of valuable missiles. And this was a very deliberate part of Russian strategy. It wasn't a, an add on. Um, it, it, it was intended to have a big effect, particularly I think when they took the view when this all started last September, that in the first instance it would be as much as they could do to stabilize um the 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 the, the lines in the in the land battles um uh, before going on to the offensive. Well they did that then they tried to go on, on the offensive and that's gotten nowhere so far and and meanwhile now there has this other campaign in, in, in April now, so I think the, I think part of the Ukrainian thinking is is that this gets Putin in even more trouble uh, to work out what to do next. Now, as far as the actual offensive goes, I mean I think it's premature to say it's all over and, and done with, um, uh, and I think there there is some concern from some Ukrainian sources that the attack on Vika, which is seems to be slightly better organised in some ways than Bakhmut, but still suffering from the same problems of lack of manoeuvrability and manpower, but nonetheless they seem to have used air power more effectively there, that, that if this um, turns into another Bakhmut, then that could create problems for the Ukrainians because there's, there's only so much you can do. Um, so I think but that requires them to have done a lot more in Avlika before before that situation is reached. Other parts of the offensive seem to have fizzled out or or, or um just lots of probes to sort of fix Ukrainian forces in, in their defensive positions, but never really expected to go anywhere. So I think we're still watching this and the Ukrainians um sort of teasing the Russians a bit at the moment. Uh the the the, the Some say, you know, we're getting ready for the offensive, happen any time. Zelensky said, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're still not ready. He doesn't want any pressure on the West to keep on providing ammunition and equipment and so on to ease. Um, So uh, I actually don't think they're quite ready yet, but there is a possibility in these situations that instead of this sort of big offensive with a start date and the whistle blowing and everybody charging off that actually you have um, something more incremental that uh, targets of opportunity open up weaknesses can be seen in some of the Russian positions uh, and they change their plans I mean after all the last big offensive they had was supposed to start in Kherson it did start in Kherson but it made its mark in Kharkiv so uh, it, it's still quite fluid
0: yeah, and there, there seems to be a great deal of political pressure on the Ukrainians to take back more territory as a demonstration of their capacity to do so, and, and is also a, a kind of, um, you know, establishing the bona fides of the West in terms of increased security assistance, right? Because now you're beginning to see some rumbles, uh, even in the United States, that, okay, we've given them everything, we've exhausted our own inventories, a very you know of, of ammunition and an expensive weaponry and if this is only going to lead to a stalemate or some kind of grinding war of attrition where the, the contact line doesn't really shift now's the time to put pressure on kiev to sue for peace or some kind of accommodation and uh, do you think that the ukraine fundamentally has the capacity to push the russians farther out or further out of, of territory that they took a, a year ago or are, are we going gonna...
1: to yeah. yeah i think they do um but it's not easy i mean if you look at the history of this war um successful offensives have been against pretty thin defenses uh, where, where defensive lines are strong it's proved hard now ukraine is getting a much more capable force um that may enable it to punch through but nobody has quite managed this yet in this war so I think it's right to be cautious, right for the Ukrainians to be cautious. uh, That Also, they're not going to get... I mean, whatever one thinks about the way the political debate's going, in practice, this is their best chance. Um, I mean, the Russians have been badly weakened by their own failures and strange uh, operational decisions that that they have made. Uh, And I come back to the point that it's not just about... The success of the Ukrainian offensive, it's also the failure of the Russian. I think that because you know it's not just a question of Ukraine wanting its territory back, Putin wants more territory. He doesn't have any of his objectives yet reached. He's still got a lot of Donetsk to take uh, if he wants to say he's got the Donbass. Uh, and if he wants to say he's got these four um, oblasts which they've annexed, he's got even more territory. To take. That's why he hasn't, as many people expected he would, offered a ceasefire. So it uh, may be that we're stuck with a stalemate because uh, Putin uh, dare not, in a way, suggest that he's failed to meet his own objectives. Uh, but I think if the Ukrainians can make a breakthrough, then the pressure on Putin will be quite severe. I, I, I mean, I. I know there's a view that, that they could make this last forever and the economy will take over and dissent is is, is put down. Uh, and, of course, no, none of us can predict exactly what will happen in the Kremlin, but I don't think this position is sustainable indefinitely for the Russians.
0: Mm. And I, I want to ask you, I mean, one of the sort of light motifs of this whole debate about the war uh, is how the West managed to so grossly overestimate. Russia's military capability. I mean, and there's been a lot of kind of granular analysis that, well, it actually it's not that they lack the manpower and the resources and the material. It's they they didn't do war the way we thought they would. So, in other words, the failure of imagination is to blame. I mean, Rusi uh, think tank in the UK, which I'm sure you're familiar with, just came out with a report. They've done a series of very good reports, but the latest is about the unconventional warfare of, from the Russian side, including uh, intelligence operations and, you know, this this busted flush attempt to stand up a column. Um, so it, it it seemed at all levels, there was just complete and utter chaos uh, and expectations were were not met. Um, and it doesn't seem like, you know, that this was sort of luck of the jaws or opportunistic failures. This was sy- systemic really. Um, why do you think that none of us really, or I mean, most mainstream analysts and certainly the Western intelligence community um, didn't appreciate that this could very well go the way it has done?
1: Yeah, I mean, I have to say I, I was always very skeptical because I mean, because just military operations go wrong, uh, and um, you know, there, there were all sorts of reasons to question whether the Russians could pull it off in the way that a number of analysts assumed they would. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think it was, nonetheless, I don't think it was unreasonable to assume that the Russians, having spent all this money on modernization, having been reasonably successful in their most recent military operations, not that there were anything like this scale, and having a doctrine which, you know, did show how they seemed to show how they understood um, combined operations, having revised their command stretches and so on. It wasn't wholly unreasonable to to believe that they might actually be able to perform. And also, I think I'd probably say that the mistakes were largely at a strategic level, which fed down to the way that they actually put together the operation. Um and the basic mistake and then the Narusi report is excellent as all as many of theirs have been um are on, on uh, obviously relying an awful lot on good Ukrainian sources. um but it but demonstrates uh, just how much they believed that they penetrated the Ukrainian system, uh, which would help to bring it down. I think the the whole mindset which led Putin to believe he could take this country over in the first place, that this was not a proper country, that it was inherently divided, that the government was illegitimate, um, that it would crumble um, in the face of a hard shock, all of these assumptions led to an arrogance in the planning um and not the sort of worst case analysis that you and i might think is a prudent thing to do if you're planning to occupy another country in which you know our countries have both failed to do in the past as well and got into trouble so uh, it, it's um it, it's arrogance hubris uh underestimation of, of the opponent uh and then that led to a plan that uh exposed most of their weaknesses So I don't think it's just, a you know, if some of their things had come off, let's say they'd they'd managed to take Kiev, which wasn't impossible. I mean, the Ukrainians um, didn't think this was easy, holding them back. Then, you know, we might think, uh, you know, the fault was ours. So, uh, but in the end, they they got it wrong. I think if I was criticising the intelligence agencies, it's not that they got it wrong on the EVE, of the war most of us got it wrong in some way on the eve of the war um it was that they didn't adjust very quickly um the the it was it seemed to me i, I thought on day one that the, the very fact that the ukrainians were able to resist that they'd kept the russians out of kiev were all pretty good signs for the ukrainians and bad for the russians but the, but, but the sort of assumption that the steamroller w- w- would would roll over everything that the Ukrainians had to offer was still quite strong for a while, even while it was evident they were getting in, into trouble. Um, so I think I, one can be critical on that. Uh, and the fact of the matter is now that the Russian army, not so much the Navy or Air Force, but the Russian army is a shadow of its former self. And it's going to take an awful long time before they're going to look a, a serious force again.
0: But I mean, you know, these the, this failure to appreciate re- Ukrainian cohesion and resilience had material policy impacts, right? I mean, the, we didn't send weapons that we're now sending as a matter of course, which has essentially modernized Ukraine's armed forces from a Soviet era relic into almost a NATO standard military. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm wondering your opinion of the, the debate about climbing up higher on the escalation ladder i mean providing attackums for instance uh, f-16 or some kind of western fighter jet which now seems to be on the cards albeit more of a distant prospect i mean are these things that are you of the opinion that as the 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 newly elected president of of said we should give the ukrainians everything except nuclear weapons to to fight this war because what they're doing single-handedly is what nato was founded to do collectively which is Defend against Russian aggression.
1: Um, well, I, I mean, I'm obviously very sympathetic to to the Ukrainian cause. Uh, I mean, we did give them stuff before, Handy which, which made a difference—the anti-tank and air defense systems. But it was defensive, I and mean, and and that was fair enough. Um, it, it would have been, I mean, it would have been better if they'd had you know more artillery there. Um, but the the systems that the, the the UK and the US and others gave them before the war did make a difference without them they would have been in more trouble and it's been incremental since then I mean which is sort of the standard Ukrainian complaint is is that they um they say they need something we all look at our feet and hum and ha and then uh, a month later we change our minds and decide they do need it and then we say they've got to be prepared, and the training's difficult. And then they show that they can learn how to use this stuff faster uh, than we thought they could, um, and so on so. So there's been this sort of rather painful process. And and you know, if you are a Ukrainian, you're right to be frustrated by this because um, the commitment's been made. If they didn't think they are not doing us a then fa- we're not doing them a favor. Um, in the sense that, that we would have been involved in a whole lot more expenditure and difficulty if Russia had just walked through Ukraine and established itself on the border with Poland, And then it would be, you know, really quite a terrifying um, new new um, confrontation. So, um, having made the commitment, we, we we had to see it through. And I think, to be fair to the West, the the Ramstein decisions in um, in January. Did uh, involve a serious recognition that if you're going to move this forward, you've got to be able to um, mount a serious offensive, uh, and that's now all slowly but surely getting into place. Whether you go for the longer range systems and aircraft, um, tricky to say. I, I think there, you know, there are some uh, some aircraft that are apparently now likely to a um, sort of Warsaw Pact era, but nonetheless aircraft of some value that that will be going to Ukraine. Um, F-16s have established a symbolism, uh, how long it would take to actually sort it out, uh, probably certainly not in time for the current offensive attack. I, I personally don't see any reason why not to give it uh, to the Ukrainians, but it's quite interesting that Ukrainians seem to have been doing things with drones and so on that they're, they're building themselves, which seem quite impressive. But I don't know enough about. But from what one can tell, there um, it's not a trivial capability. Uh, but it is again frustrating for the Ukrainians when uh, the, the Russians um, were sort of forced back by by the the use of high Mars in the summer. To, to have to keep their you know their logistics out of range, but it's still on Ukrainian territory. Um so it's you know I can see why they're frustrated by that. So that, you know, that that may come along eventually. But I think we've now reached a point where um you know the Ukrainians are not in bad shape to be able to mount an a mount an offensive um and let's see what they can do with what they've got. And, and you know always keep in mind that it's not just having the um the artillery pieces and the tanks and so on it's having the ammunition and that has been the major problem for the for the the ukrainians they just haven't had enough ammunition over the last uh, few months
0: well and it seems it's it's a major problem for at least the american military industrial complex which is now ramping up at 20th century levels that they they never thought they would have to, to do i mean for conventional warfare running out of this stuff uh, at home um do you see this as a kind of eye-opening moment for the collective west as putin would call it and in terms of being much better prepared and anticipating conventional conflicts like this i mean we'd spent 20 years fighting deeply unconventional wars against insurgencies and terrorist organizations now we have tank battles in the heart of europe again you
1: know? well you know if, if, um yeah who knows um whether, you know, this may be just a complete one-off. I mean, it, it's taken us all by surprise. It hasn't exactly shown the wisdom of going to war in this form. Uh, so it, maybe it's a, it's a one-off. Russia's not going to be in a position to try anything like this on for a while. Uh, you know, it's not to say that it, it it won't try to reconstitute itself forces. I'm sure it will. Um, and, you know, the next leader... They start off making friendly noises to the West, as Putin did, and still turn out uh, to be pretty hostile. A conflict with China is more maritime, one would assume. But uh, the fact is, if you're going to maintain serious armed forces, it's silly to do that without uh, the ammunition to keep them going. So I I think uh, it's clear that if you're going to get into any sort of conflict, uh, of ed- uh, this sort of intensity, you're, go- you're going to need far more stocks than we've expected in the past. Even though this is a lesson that's, you know, appears with every war, you know, armies ought- and, and even navies always run out, uh, or fear that they're going to run out. Uh, and the UK in its latest um, refresh of its of the integrated review uh, uh, has announced that that, that that you know this is going to be a high priority for now because we just don't have the industrial capacity. And you've got to persuade the um, the companies that it's worth tooling up. That they won't get a sort of two two years worth of orders and then it'll dribble away again. Well,
0: what, what do you think is a reasonable end goal for particularly the United States here, right? I mean, as I alluded to earlier, there's a discussion happening. Well, you know, we don't really think they can take Crimea back and they're not going to push the Russians across the border in in full. Um, but then again, you know, you have Ben Hodges and others who are, are quite bullish about Ukraine's prospects and who think actually, no, I mean, Crimea is in play. Um, and if we give them X, Y and Z kit, they, they, they could very well do this. Uh, do you see this ending in some kind of negotiated settlement or a situation in which Russia still continues to occupy territory uh more than they had as of february 24th of last year or do you think maybe putin decides okay i've i've now completely depleted my own resources he he gets religion on the subject and says let me just pack up and go home and declare a victory which i can easily do because i control all means of information for my population
1: i, I think it's difficult for putin to do that because uh people know i mean <laughs> he can't do a thing like this and uh uh, make all these statements and talk about forever the, these new uh, oblasts that have been incorporated into the Russian Federation and say, well, as it happens, they're not. Um, I, I think there is a problem. That's one reason why he hasn't really made uh, any effort to get a piece. So if you look at the latest statement, it's just a, from the Russian Foreign Ministry. It's just a, a rehash of almost everything plus more. That they've asked for in the past as if they were negotiating from a position of strength um there's, i mean i have two basic thoughts on this first it's unwise to get ahead of ourselves uh that there's a long way to go before Crimea is in play uh it may become in play uh, i don't think it's impossible uh but we're, we're somewhere away from that and if we start to get in that direction then you will get a reaction from russia of some sort because I think the thing that would uh, uh, unnerve Putin more than anything else would be the prospect of, of losing Crimea or having Crimea vulnerable, which comes if the water supplies so so on are threatened. There's, there's all sorts of um, ways by which you, you the, the Russians can start to get worried before you've actually mounted a full-scale invasion. Uh, you know. Now that Russia, Ukraine can hit things at a distance, there are, there are things for, for Russia to be worried about there. So, my first thought is it's just not get ahead of ourselves. Um, we don't know uh, how this will play out completely yet. And uh, the end game depends more on the Ukrainians than it does on us and, and on the Russians. Uh, and people have been trying to get the Biden administration. To, to put their limits on, on what Ukraine can do and ask for. I just think it's it's premature and unwise because that's not the way these things are going to work. It's not that the there may not be conversations between the Biden administration and Kyiv later on, uh, but, but we're just not there yet. Uh, the second point is it's very hard to see how this, the fighting ends with a big negotiation. Uh, There's just too many issues now to be addressed. Not only do you have to agree the borders, and that's going to be hard enough, you're going to have to agree on reparations, the end of sanctions, war crimes. Um, The the numerous issues, if you look at the points that uh, Zelensky made in his uh, address to the G20 last November, uh, a large part of it is, is... what do you do about all the horrible things that have happened to Ukraine environmentally, as well, financially, uh, as well as in the loss of life? Do you get the children back that have been up? These are all issues that, that, that uh, could go on for ages. And the, the um, uh, leaving aside that Zelensky said, they need to get anything ratified uh, through a referendum at home. So my, I think. If you're gonna get anything, it'll be a ceasefire plus disengagement. Um, that's what I would uh, expect at some point. I think if the Russians uh, really do seem like they're being pushed back without any hope of being a- of being able to recover, um, then you'll start to see feelers going out about the possibility of a ceasefire, which the Ukrainians will resist. And then some of the Western countries will say, well, please take this seriously, and we'll get into that debate then. I think disengagement is key. We've got experience with disengagement agreements in the Middle East. Um, you could imagine a role for uh, a UN force, peacekeeping force of of some sort. Um, you know, the, the, the enclave areas in the Donbass, um, I think you know, some, some in Kiva are slightly nervous about quite what attitudes they'll they'll find there uh so there the, the may, the may well be a case for some sort of peacekeeping force that the, the ukrainians uh you know will want their people uh who are under occupation to be made safe and to be able to keep on gathering evidence of war crimes and so on so um they're not going to leave anything as a no man's land, I don't think. They they, they will want um, that they, they will want something there, and if it's not them, it, it could be uh, uh, an international force of some sort. But that's how I would. That's the most likely scenario uh, for a conclusion. Would that, that, that gives any stability? Would be a ceasefire, as we know from Korea. Ceasefires can turn into de facto settlements, which is why um Ukraine will be very cautious about the circumstances which it agrees or else it'll just dribble on you know the, the not at this level of intensity neither side could can can manage that um but a bit like you know it's been really since 2014-15 um with um occasional fighting some skirmishing um w- both sides maintaining forces close to the line of contact, and so on. I mean, that that's also a, a feasible conclusion, which is sort of a stalemate, um, but not necessarily one that um, is so bad for the Ukrainians if they've managed to push the Russians back quite a bit. Obviously, if it's on the current lines, it's not satisfactory at all.
0: Well, then, then you, you you can envisage a scenario in which you have two Ukraines, one which is very much integrated into the Western community, if not, you know, the EU with visa-free travel and all the economic benefits that derive there from, and, and a modernized army, possibly with Western aircraft. And then this sort of Stalinoid, you know, kind of state of suspended animation in, in you know, parts of Donbass and, and Crimea. Um, and you get into this kind of Pepsi challenge, where, where would you rather live and what kind of, you know, life would you rather have. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, ironically, you mentioned those who had been under occupation, what attitudes they had prior to the war. You know, a lot of Ukrainians, soda voce, would say things like, well, in a way, Putin did us a favor by penning, off, penning up all the pro-Russian citizens of our country and depriving them of their political input in Kiev, which allowed us to essentially become more integrated and to, to have this revivified, sort of sense of nationhood and, and peoplehood um so even though no one will admit it it's blasphemy at, at the present i could see a situation in which the ukrainians say we've got as much of proper ukraine back as possible and now we're e- even more robust and more of a western democracy um and these other areas just are now going to be part of russia you know
1: and, i don't i don't think zelensky could say that uh, I, I think uh, I don't think he will I, I think if you, you know, look at look at Ukrainian po- polling you know, this first it shows remarkably united people uh, in ways that it didn't before with remarkable degrees of confidence in their state which you wouldn't have seen before um, and in their leadership uh, I, don't think the, I don't think the Ukrainians are prepared to write anywhere off yet Crimea, uh, the enclaves, yeah. I mean, there may be, if you've got so far, but you're pretty tired and exhausted and you're licking your wounds, yeah, then maybe you can imagine uh, uh, some conversation there. And, you know, go back to the start of the conflict, of the war. Um, when there were serious peace negotiations apparently taking place, Zelensky had some ideas on dual citizenship and and so on that, that that might have were there. Certainly, it's the case that anybody stuck under Russian occupation for the for the future is that not going to have a happy life. Um, and uh, you know, I think the Ukrainian most Russian-speaking Ukrainians that I know are brushing up on the Ukrainian, you know, saying, I never want to speak Russian again. Uh, So I think the alienation is something we're going to live with for a long time. I mean, wars like this that have been fought in this way, as as cruelly and as brutally as the Russians have fought it, is is leaving a legacy that's going to be very hard to heal, even with a completely different sort of regime in Moscow. So um, you know the, the legacy of this will, will will go on and you know one way to address these sorts of legacies is through a proper peace conference but i just don't see that that happening soon i mean and the other things that we just have to keep in mind is is the demands of reconstruction in ukraine uh, and the i think the worst thing to happen to ukraine well two 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 serious dangers one is that the west says gosh we've done a good job uh uh, give ourselves a pat on the back and, and, and lose interest. I think we're going to need to be engaged with Ukraine for some time to help with the reconstruction and at the same time for the Ukrainians not to clamp down on all the problems that they had before with corruption and so which, you which know, they're all very aware, the leadership is very aware. And Zelensky has been, I think, feeling strong enough in his position to start uh, addressing some of this corruption. But it really does need to be addressed, especially if they want to join the EU. Uh, and the EU, I think, are playing quite an important role in in this. So I think that you know there's a lot to play for on the Ukrainian side. There's things to look forward to. Um, the, the reconstruction, once it takes off, could, could really be in some ways quite exciting for them. But uh, if it doesn't take off, then you know you've got a population. Many, you know, which has been depleted of a lot of its men folk. A lot of people, uh, a lot of its women folk, are, are living abroad. Um, uh, those who've been through the war uh, or an occupation, many of them will be traumatised. Uh, it, it's not going to be easy, uh, and um, you know, they're going to need a lot of support to get through it.
0: And I mean, you know, the other variable here is how this war might impact. Russian politics. I mean, there could be some cataclysm in Moscow. Putin is not going to live forever. We don't know who will succeed him or what kind of political regime will emerge or even fall apart. Um, Which, I mean, that's it's not something the West is or should be banking on. But clearly, you know, if there's a 1991 moment or even an 89 moment uh, in Russia, I could see the Ukrainians taking every opportunity to to capitalize on it and push the Russians out. I mean, they'd be discombobulated. There'd be no command and control of their military forces?
1: Well, I, I think, you know, I, I think there are, there are there are people in Moscow who will be very worried about where this is going, including, I suspect, in the military as well, because they're, 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 they're not uh, the force they were. Um, I and mean, we know the technocrats are unhappy and, and so on. Um, you know, in last September, when Putin... M- could have, should have um, realized that this was not going his way, and, and found a way out. He doubled down. He, he raised the stakes much higher, uh, uh, both in, in, in ends and means. He, 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 he announced the annexations, and he mobilized, and he started attacking Ukrainian infrastructure. Uh, the, the next question is: you know, the next time he faces that sort of decision, which is sort of about now. How does um, does he double down? Try to double down more? What with, uh, or or does he try to to see if there's a way out? Or does somebody else try to see if there's a way out? I think it's unwise for for us in the West to speculate too much or suggest that we do have war aims um, in relation to Russia, because it's not that easy to see. Um, now would a different regime that possibly comes from the nationalistic right be easier to deal with? Um, can we assume it would just come from moderate technocrats? Um, what would happen if there's a breakup of the Russian Federation, which I don't think is likely, but you know what 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 would happen? What I think is more likely, which is an issue, is um uh, in you know Transnista or Ossetia, Abkhazia, places like this, um, Russia is less able to hold a line. Um, and, and you can already see it in Central Asia, where Russian influence is much, much weaker than before. And I think that again is something that's going to be bothering people in Moscow. I mean, again, coming back to where we started, the whole tone of the Z um, Putin joint statement just shows, I think, the weakness of, of Russia, how little it has to contribute to anything. So I think there the, are the plenty of people in, in, in Moscow worried uh, about where this is going and, and really wish it would stop. Uh, but so far, they haven't been done anything about that. So you know, what we're looking for is, is somebody acting. But you know, people I know who know Russia very well indeed seem in the dark about what's going on. Uh, so we, we're just waiting to see. But it, just because we don't know or can't see it doesn't mean to say it won't happen. Sure, sure.
0: Well, Sir Lawrence, I've, I've taken up too much of your time already, um, but it's been a very uh, enlightening and insightful conversation, as I knew it would be. Um, I want to thank you for for joining us this week. Uh, my guest is, is Sir Lawrence Friedman. He is the Emeritus Professor of War Studies at uh, King's College uh, in London. Uh, he is also the author of a recent book, Command, politics of military operations from Korea to Ukraine and he is one of the few substacks I read on a regular basis uh, and you can see his analysis on Ukraine and geopolitics and everything else under the sun there uh, I will link to your substack when the episode drops but again thanks so much for joining
1: us my pleasure good to talk to you
0: I'm Michael Weiss and you've been listening to Foreign Office thanks very much